Hey everyone, this is Tom Salemi. Welcome back to the Device Talks Weekly Podcast. A most excellent episode for you. We're going to interview Brooke Story and Dave Hickey of BD. We're going to be talking about their diagnostics business, how things worked during COVID and how things look going forward. Great conversation with the two of them. I particularly enjoyed the origin stories. Uh, Dave Hickey's brought back some memories. Also excited to have Paul Grand, the CEO of MedTech Innovator, on the program. Paul will be taking part in the Newmarkers Newsmakers. So it was great to have him in our rundown of the highlights of the week. And Paul also uh, told us about an important deadline coming up for MedTech Innovator. I will, uh, I'll spoil it a bit. The deadline is February 15th. You've heard the date. Paul will explain the significance in this episode of the Device Talks Weekly Podcast. Finally, once again, Paul will be at Device Talks Boston. He'll be running a MedTech Innovator track. Got a lot of great details in this podcast about what is coming up. And uh, the, the sessions look great. The agenda looks great. Go to devicetalks.com to see what we have planned. I'll, I'll tell you some more details a little later in the podcast, but I'll tell you this detail now. Register and you can save yourself a boatload of money. Use this very special podcast code, DTW. That stands for Device Talks Weekly. So DTW25, and that will save you 25% off the price of registration. Once again, go to devicetalks.com to check it out. Now let's get into this episode of the Device Talks Weekly Podcast. All right, you ready for this? Ready. Chris Newmarker, how are you, sir? Good to be here, Tom. How's it going, man? It's going great. It's a little crowded here in the uh, Device Talks Weekly Studio. We have our first guest to take part in the new markers newsmakers wow it's always great when we got a first we got that's a first. right we have our our number one fan he was our 100,000th listener so we brought him in no we don't actually know that for sure 100,000 he's paul <laughs> grand of the medtech innovator paul welcome hey guys great to be here great to have you how was the green room did you enjoy the uh the mimosas and the, no, the, the snacks the snacks were great it uh it it, it definitely uh exceeded expectations nice job guys we like we like to take care of our guests, so it's great. It's great to have you here. We're going to. Uh, it was have nice you- that you went out of the way and stopped at Costco like before this time. It was good. It was good. I got that's right. I, I got the goldfish and the tiny bottles of water. I know those are Paul's favorite. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you guys. Uh, so we're going to walk through the new markers, newsmakers, but we're also going to uh, get an update from you. Uh, the MedTech Innovator has been incredibly busy, and uh, we're incredibly busy in 2022. In fact, you're working with us on Device Talks Boston. Really excited about that. Excited to be at Device Talks Boston. I, I got that. Uh, I got. We'll get a lot to talk about. I'm not going to spoil it now. Before we get into the new markers, newsmakers, Paul, we had you on the podcast once before, and I don't think I asked you the question. How, how did you get into MedTech? What was your first MedTech gig? Um, my first med tech gig was a, uh, a medical device company uh, where I was one of the co-founders, uh, uh, and that was a, uh, an ablation device for neurosurgery uh, to uh, help go after uh, patients who had metastatic brain tumors. So I did wow. that in partnership with Keith Black, who's a uh, world-renowned neurosurgeon, and it was his technology, uh, and I just helped uh, you know, put the business together. Uh, that was that got me into my start in medtech. Wow! So you were one wow. of those uh, those CEOs, those startup CEOs, scrambling for cash and, and trying to make it all work. That was you. 
That was me. Uh, I, I knew what it was like to be on that side of the table many times. I actually started eight different companies um, and, uh, and that one in med tech, another one in biopharma and a bunch of tech companies. And that got me my start in med tech. And, uh, you know, I never, never looked back. That's fantastic. And I know you and I met when you were at RCT and you were, you were doing investing there. You were on the other side of the table. Uh, and then you created MedTech Innovator. Tell us about the, 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 the inspiration that got you to start MedTech Innovator and, and share with our audience exactly what MedTech Innovator does. Sure. Yeah. So, um, so that transition from entrepreneur to, uh, to MedTech Innovator had, uh, had something in between, which I'll just briefly mention, which was that uh, one of the investors in the biopharma company uh, was RCT Ventures, as you mentioned. And RCT noticed that um, I was getting a little bored of sitting around watching, uh, watching our drug screening guys work and, uh, <laughs> and reporting at each board meeting how there was nothing to report. And they said, hey, you want to come uh, help us out with some of our other portfolio companies, uh, which I did. And, uh, and then they said, why don't you just join the firm? So, uh, so I joined RCT. I thought I'd be in a, a VC for like a year and learn that business and then jump out and run another company. But 12 years later, I was still there uh, because VC is a great job, as you guys, I think, probably know. It's a, it's a terrific job for many reasons, one of which is that you get to see a lot of stuff mm-hmm. um, and you get to meet a ton of people. And it's really nice not to be out there, as you said, begging for money and uh, banging on doors. It's a lot nicer to have the money. So I was in that enviable yeah. position for, as I said, close to 12 years. Um, and along the way, uh, we, we went through a financial crisis where we saw lots of people uh, stop funding early stage med tech. You know, all those brand names that you and I used to meet, uh, you know, Tom and, and Chris, where, you know, we used to be out there and we'd see all these funds and they, they all disappeared, right? They all just like left the game after they 2010. Did. And uh, RCT continued investing in that space. We were, you know, it, it was like the Forrest Gump after the, uh, after the, uh, the hurricane comes through and the shrimp was a plenty. Yeah. and uh uh, we didn't have that problem anymore all of a sudden uh you know the pickings were great and met and rct was no longer losing deals to other firms and uh that was fantastic but you know i just started observing all these innovators out there who were no longer going to the conferences like i remember saying to casey mcglynn we were at jp morgan in 2013 and i said like where are the innovators at you know there's no you look around and they weren't going to his conference in the way they used to. They weren't showing up at JPM and a bunch of other places because the money wasn't there. Mm-hmm. And um, and I said, like, you know, and he's like, what are we going to do about that? And I said, I don't know. Why don't we start like an American Idol for medical technology? And he said, that sounds great. <laughs> so uh, that's right. You were you were awesome. MedTech Idol initially, right? I met, year one was MedTech Idol. Exactly. And so uh, that was the genesis in 2013. We did that at his conference in June. Um, and then uh, at the end of that event, which went incredibly well, David Cassick came running over and said, hey, you got to do this at my conferences. Um, and, uh, and so I said, sure, you know, of course. And so we did that at his, his San Francisco conference. And then the Dublin conference, which is where I met you for the first time, Tom. Yep. And, uh, and that's when, you know, we started the conferences. We started the Accelerator in 2015 because we recognized that there was a huge gap in support for medical innovators. It wasn't just about having competitions and giving people you know, a, a small check, that there was this major gap in advice, um, I would say, good guidance. That's the thing that I observed, I think more than anything else, is that people were still funding early stage med tech, but the people who were funding it no longer knew anything about bringing products to market. Um, it was the, you know, once they were the early stage smart institutional investors gone, what was left was a bunch of 
angels and people who had, you know, kind hearts and they wanted to make an impact, but boy, they were making terrible, terrible mistakes in the guidance they were giving these companies and saying like, Hey, you should put out your MVP and quickly iterate and, you know, just stuff that you can't do in med tech. Um, and, uh, and just, so they made a yeah. lot of mistakes and med tech innovator was designed to, uh, to basically make sure the really great companies don't fail for the wrong reason. Um, you know, they got the right need, they got the right technology, they got a, a team, they got all sorts of things going for them. And they make all these mistakes for the wrong reasons. And MedTech Innovators Accelerator is designed to fix that and to make it so that these companies actually reach patients and that they get there with the maximum value possible. Yeah, I think that's the cool thing is you're combining the money with, you know, the advice and the support they need so they don't do stupid things, basically. Basically, that's it, Chris. So talk talk about your impact. Uh, what does your portfolio look like? And uh, do you have a measure as to uh, what, what has happened after they've been become part of your portfolio in terms of fundraising yeah, success? Yeah, look, I, you know, we have lots of measures. Fundraising success has got to be one of them because it's, you know, one of the, the easiest things that you can look at as a, as a KPI. And um we have at this point, since inception, 420 companies that have graduated MedTech Innovators cohorts, which are now uh, a U.S. program focused on companies in the U.S. market, our Asia program um, for companies that want to enter the Asia markets. Um, and we just most recently added a biotools program for life science tools companies. That was our first year last year doing that. Um, but 420 companies have since you know, graduating MedTech Innovator gone on to raise $4 billion in follow-on funding, of which, which is amazing, wow. right? That number is huge. I, that deserves a wow. Thank you. Wow. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and, and the amazing thing is, as I said, we started in 2013. So that's, you know, nine years of work. And of that $4 billion, 50% of that $2 billion was last year alone. Wow. So, you know. Wow. Two hours. Those are legitimate ones. It's like wow. it's like Carl Sagan levels you're talking about. Here. It's great. <laughs> it's, it's, Carl Sagan. it's awesome. So, you know, 20, <laughs> 2021, $2 billion in, in in funding for our portfolio companies. You know, I looked at I pulled out the Silicon Valley report that uh Silicon Valley Bank report that uh, John Norris and team puts together every year. And you know, that's just fresh, you know, off the presses a couple of weeks ago. And you know, and he reported the numbers and said, you know, for 2021, there was eight point eight billion dollars in funding for med tech. Um, and I do the little, the quick back of the envelope math. That means that, you know, uh, you know, more than 25% of the funding is going to our portfolio. So I feel pretty good about that. Uh, I feel pretty good about wow. that. We've got a stellar, yeah, we got a stellar portfolio of companies. That's fantastic. Look, it doesn't hurt that we're unbelievably choosy about who we take. You know, we got about a 4% acceptance rate. Um, last year, 1,800 companies applied to MedTech Innovator and we accepted 85 of those. So um, we're pretty, we're pretty picky when it comes to uh, to that, you know, the companies that we accept. And a little secret that not everybody knows is that ultimately the people who are deciding which companies get accepted uh, are our corporate partners, uh, you know, of which we have, you know, over 20, what do you have, 27 or something corporate partners right now, companies like J&J and Olympus and Nipro Medical and Edwards Life Sciences, many others, you know, Dexcom, these are all our corporate partners. And, you know, what we run is not just a typical accelerator where you've got like 
a local ecosystem in, you know, in Texas or wherever it might be, where you're trying to find great companies to help the, you know, the local economy. We have no regional affiliation. We're just trying to find the best companies in the world. And our corporate partners are the ones who ultimately raise their hand and say, I want to work with that company. Uh, and if they don't raise their hand and say that, we don't pick the companies. Nice. So, you know, it does mean that, you know, there are some great companies that are letting, getting left on the cutting room floor as well, to use our Hollywood terms here. But we, we definitely, um, we are definitely getting the best of the best of the best. That's fantastic. All right. Well, we're, we're excited to have you uh, at Device Talks Boston. We'll talk about that, that program in a bit. We're going to roll into the new markets newsmakers. But first, Paul, I didn't tell you we'd be doing this, but I'm going to test you. I know you're a fan of the podcast. You listen to it at 1.5 speed. As you run, I wanted to test your knowledge of our podcast. I've got a little quiz here for you. We'll have wow. a few questions here. So the first question is, in what types of food is pumpkin flavor acceptable, Paul? Is it is it ah, beer? Okay. Is it sausage? Or this is per Tom and Chris, so you have to know our preferences. Or is it breads and muffins? I'm going with sausage. Oh. Am I wrong? <laughs> no, we don't like pumpkin sausage. Oh, I'm you sorry. You know, I always hear you say pumpkin sausage. And I, you know, I just I, I equate those two things together, but I but I'm going. I, I just I I had it in my head. Okay. I just had the wrong. I was on the line. I'm sorry. I was in the flip. But Slow I- the podcast down, Paul. You need to listen to it at 1x. No more 1.5 for <laughs> not, you. you know, exactly. By the way, I, I did. I, I should have pointed this out before. It is, it is mine. It's blowing my mind right now to have you guys talking at such a slow speed. So I, I'm, I'm, we will try I'm, to speed it up. I feel like I'm compensating by talking really fast. I'm used, yeah, to, we- I'm, used, I'm used to you guys talking faster. I'm sorry I missed the question, but I'll, I'll, I'll get the next one. You'll, you'll, you've got two more chances to redeem yourself. All so. right. All right. Chris Newmarker, let us uh, roll into number five on the vaunted Newmarker's Newsmakers list. All right. Number five on the list, we've got uh, Medtronic, uh, you know, another uh, like FDA announcing another a, a class one you know, level recall out of uh, Medtronic. So this is like the third time this year that Medtronic has cla- that uh, FDA has classified a uh, Medtronic uh, related recall as uh, as class one. Um, this time around, it's uh, it's their uh, Hawk one system it's a, a directional arthrectomy uh system and uh you know there have been about a uh, 163 complaints 55 reported injuries uh to date no no related deaths but uh here's here's just hoping that uh medtronic's like uh working through the recalls and we'll we'll see uh less of these going forward no for sure no doubt they're they're looking at this i just want to confirm so the fda has confirmed three class one recalls specifically for medtronic they're all for medtronic right yeah, yeah, right. this year, yeah, so far just for January. So, so yeah. yeah, I'm looking at the article now. So the Puritan Bennett 980 series ventilator and the so, Synergy yeah. Cranial and Stealth Station S7 cranial software. Yeah, so those were the two earlier this year, you know, and they, um, you know, they had a a good batch of them last year, and you know, and plus there's been a scrutiny of you know Medtronic's diabetes business from uh, from FDA as well. So just. Uh, yeah, here's uh, yeah, here's helping. We're finally, you know, working through this this stuff. All right, well, let's move on to number four, Chris. Bring bring the the the, the mood up a little bit. What do you got at number four? Yeah, right. You know, <laughs> um, yeah. 
Well, you know, uh, you know, number four. Come on, on the man. List, uh, sorry, man. <laughs> I mean, you know, Edwards Life Sciences. They, uh, you know, they missed on their Q4 earnings. Um, you know, and the big reason is Omicron. Um, I mean, it. Uh, you know, they they were uh, you know talking about how it's like been you know um, it's had a pronounced uh, impact on hospital resources uh, that they they mostly saw in December. But I mean, that's uh, that's something else that you would uh, you know see. Uh, you know, COVID's not just affecting you know elective procedures like you know knee surgeries. I mean, there's uh, you know people who need heart valves who you know aren't aren't able to get them right now. So uh, just 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 really stresses. You know, I mean, I, I think I think our, our listeners are pretty scientific people. They're vaccinated. But, you know, if you know anybody who isn't, um, you know, encourage them to get vaccinated, encourage them to get a booster because, you know, it's not just yourself you're protecting. But you're, you know, if you're, you know, potentially exposing other people, stressing our healthcare system, you know, people who need needed health care aren't getting it right now. And even as Omicron fades, I suspect we'll see a, a crunch on the healthcare system as people try to get procedures done that they've had to put off. So, uh I was just reading, uh, I think it was in the uh, New York Times today in Britain, they're, they're starting to see people who've delayed healthcare, you know, coming in with two advanced cancers, you know, um, heart problems. I mean, yeah, we need to, we need to get this fixed. Get vaccinated. Paul, you were, get vaccinated. You were talking earlier about, uh, about starting off at, uh, at Wilson Sonsini's conference and, and now your other conferences, you'll be at Device Talks Boston. We're excited about, uh, about getting together in person. How have you fared the last two years uh, with your pitch contests and uh, do Doing them virtually, and uh, how excited are you about hopefully getting back together again in person? Boy, I'll tell you, um, I am so excited to get back to being in person for these events because they are so social in their nature. Um, You know, if we just wanted to read business plans and if we just wanted to do, you know, video interviews, um, you know, I think it would be a very different program. We really we worked really hard in 2020 and 2021 to deliver, you know, the same level of quality and the same kind of experience for our companies. But that was a lot more work. Um, It was it was probably twice as hard to do this virtual, um, I would say, because Hmm. You get, I mean, look, it's it's a totally different experience getting together in person and hanging out and getting to know people um, than just seeing them pitch on a screen in a little box. And, um, yeah. you know, and that whole, that whole, you know, a big part of what we do is, do we like these people? Um, you know, yeah. because there, as I said, there's hundreds of people that are qualified to be a med tech innovator and we're only taking 80 or 90 of them, right? So um, of those hundreds of people, some of the ones that we're not taking are because we just don't think they're a good fit for us. So, you know, like we say, yeah, they really, they're not going to take our guidance. They're not that open to feedback. You know, they were, they don't really, you know, maybe they're trying to win the prize, but they don't really want to be in the program. And, and, and the people who go through the program will tell you the program is the prize, not, mm-hmm. not just the cash awards. Yeah. And so we want people who want to be there. Um, so going to, going to do this in person is so important. Um, and our partners, who travel with us. I mean, we are like, you know, I use the American Idol analogy. We travel with our partners to all these different cities. We'll bring them to, you know, in an average year, seven different cities to meet with innovators in Minneapolis and other places in Boston, wherever. And, uh, and we rotate the cities and it's a lot of fun uh, and everyone really enjoys it. And it's a big part of the process. So to do that on Zoom required um, double the number of times, you know, double the number of meetings because we had, we couldn't keep people on Zoom for a day, uh, the way we can keep them in person for a day, you know, it's too hard to sit in front of your screen. So, uh, so we had to stretch that out over like 14 pitch events. Uh-huh. Um, you know, it's just a lot to ask of people. So I want to be back. And I, 
I suspect, you know, you do all that work and then you're still missing out. I mean, one of the things that, that I like the best about conferences is just like accidentally like striking up a conversation with somebody and being like, wow, this is I'm glad I met this person. This is somebody I didn't know, like is, is really knowledgeable and, you know, has some really cool insights about stuff. I mean, you, you're, you're missing out on all that without a live event. Absolutely. Yeah. So it's the deals like we always say, like deals get done on our road tour, those pitch events, regardless of whether we take somebody into MedTech Innovator, people get funding, people call us afterwards. They're like, that was amazing. I met is we'll have like 90 judges at each one of our pitch events. It's not like we have four people who are making decisions. We have 90 judges who are investors, wow. strategics, uh, clinicians, sometimes people from the FDA and other places join in. Um, they're all there. They're meeting each other and they're like you know, hospital systems, you know, payers will be there and people come out and they go, I just got to deal with somebody. Um, you know, thank you very much. It doesn't matter whether or not we make it into MedTech interview. This, this was enough alone. And that's, it's harder to do that on Zoom. Let's just say yeah, I can't wait to get back to that environment myself. Yeah, and I'm, yeah. I'm looking forward to give us a little pitch. I'm looking forward to our device talk shows, you know, getting, getting going later this year as well. So it'll be it'll be great. So who are we going to see on stage? What what type of company we're we going to see on stage May 10th and 11th uh, at Device Talks Boston? Who are you bringing? Yeah. So so we're you know, so for, you know, for anyone who doesn't know, um, you know, as you just mentioned, Device Talks Boston um, is the event we're going to use this year for our mid-stage companies. Um, and what that means is of the companies applying to MedTech Innovator, a lot of people don't realize this either. People will say, oh, I've already raised my Series A, so I guess I'm too late for MedTech Innovator. No, 90% of the people in MedTech Innovator have raised a Series A. Um, and, you know, and, and, and probably about 40% have raised a Series B. Wow. Uh, so we actually take companies that are more mature than, than you would think. Um, and they still have a lot to do. You know, a lot of this is value and market access and, um, and, and things that, you know, will determine whether these companies are successful down the road. Yeah. Uh, and so the mid-stage companies, we take about half the companies each year at MedTech Innovator are what I call mid-stage. So usually they've raised a Series B already um, and they're on to, you know, they're clinical. Um, and in fact, you know, a large number of companies are clinical and MedTech Innovator, but these companies especially are clinical. They may be on the market already. Um, so the mid-stage companies, you know, um, that's the place that we're going to be inviting them to present will be device talks. So we'll have a day that we're going to spend with our 90 evaluators and 30 of those companies. Um, they'll be all meeting together. We do. A, we have a whole partnering system where we partner up groups of judges who all like the same companies to meet with companies. So that'll all be happening. Um, and we're going to do that and flip-flop them during the day. So like there'll be a morning session of that. Um, and then the rest of the time, they'll be at device talks. And then we'll flip-flop that with like our afternoon session who will go to device talks. So they'll all get to be both, you know, meeting all of our ecosystem uh, and all the judges and, you know, investors and others, and they'll get to be at Device Talks, mm -hmm. um, which is really cool. Um, and, uh, and, you know, we have, again, we haven't announced all the details here yet. So this is, uh, you know, debut news, but we're going to have a competition at Device Talks where we will be selecting um, at least four of the companies. Sometimes we can't help ourselves and choose five, <laughs> um, but at least four of those companies will get selected to compete for a prize uh, during the device talks conference, uh, you know, on the stage and the device talks audience will pick the winner. So, you know, lots of fun stuff, all those companies will be showcasing. So 30 
unbelievably high caliber, high tier companies will be showcasing during device talks. That's awesome. So That's really excited about that. Yeah, we're super excited to have you there. I'd reached out to you when we were first, I first got here. I think we were doing device talks, Minnesota in 2020. We're going to have you help us out there. And of course that didn't work. No, but uh, this is, this is almost better to have you uh, on this bigger stage and, uh, and we're already in rare and a go. So it should be, should be a great event. Can't wait. Be there or be square. Hey everybody, Tom here. Just taking a quick break from this episode to, uh, we'll tell you a couple of things. Number one, Paul says he knew the sausage answer. He just, he just pushed the button too soon. And well, that happened. So we'll give him a pass on that one. He's obviously a, a loyal listener, as you'll uh, hear later on the podcast. Number two, uh, we are extremely excited to have Paul and MedTech Innovator at Device Talks Boston. Also extremely excited to be working with Abbott, Boston Scientific, Medtronic, Stryker, and Depew. They are putting together content that, uh, that will help illustrate problems they faced and solutions that they found. It's really going to be a discussion as to how we can move forward as a sector over the over those two days. And uh, it's great to have their participation in the program. So I, I honestly don't think you'll want to miss this. Please go to devicetalks.com to register. Registration is open. Check out the agenda. And when you do register, please use the code DTW25 to save 25%. So find four of your friends. Register all five folks, and one of you is attending for free. How is that? That sounds pretty damn good, if you ask me. So it'll be great to see you there in Boston. Go to devicetalks.com. And while you're there, check out our uh, upcoming lineup for Device Talks Tuesdays. We're going to be restarting that on February 8th. We have a great program put together by our sponsor, Spectrum. And it'll feature two folks who have been in the podcast just recently, Santush Prabhu of Abbott's and Stan Rowe of NXT Biomedical. We'll be talking about delivery systems for heart valves, and it'll be a great conversation. Find more details at devicetalks.com. Please do register. I have no code for that because registration is free. Just sign up. You're going to get a great conversation from some leaders in the space. That's it. Now let's get back to this episode of the Device Talks Weekly Podcast. Chris Newmarker, bring us uh, bring up number three on the Newmarker's Newsmakers list. Hey, oh, number three on the list, we've got a uh, surgical robot maker Distal Motion raising ninety million dollars in a, a Series E financing uh, round led by uh, Revival Healthcare Capital. Uh, but uh, the uh, the Swiss company, um, they're, they're planning to use the funding to support uh, global commercialization of their Dexter surgical robot. And uh, Dexter received a CE mark approval in Europe in uh, December 2020. And uh, this is uh, you know, a laparoscopic surgery a robot. They see it you know, being used in general, gynecological and, and neurological uh, surgeries. Uh, and uh, yeah, just another, and robotic surgery is just a hot space. I mean, it's just so dominant by, you know, intuitive, just like even a decade ago. And now, you know, we're uh, seeing big companies like Medtronic and J&J looking to get in. Um, and, and we're just seeing all these like sm- smaller companies, with all these different uh, cool ideas, like raising money, uh, you know, looking to you know do, uh, do some neat stuff in the space. I spoke with the CEO, Michael Friedrich, uh, on Monday. We're going to have him up on a uh, podcast in a couple of weeks. And the real differentiating factor between Dexter and, and the other the other surgical systems is this one stays in the surgical field. So the surgeons don't have to move in and out to work it. And uh, it really is a smaller profile, a lower profile. And they think there's an opportunity to, to really create a market where Intuitive and the other big players don't operate. So, uh, so really, it's a, an interesting play and definitely... One of those companies where you hear the story, like, okay, I can see how that fits into the, the larger surgical robotic uh, landscape. So a uh, very, very interesting company to watch. 
Yeah, I've seen, uh, by the way, as a fan of your podcast um, <laughs> and an avid listener, you guys have done unbelievable coverage on surgical robotics um, and all the players in the space. And, and I can tell you, um, having this kind of unique lens of what the innovation landscape, uh, there are some amazing ones that we all haven't heard of yet that are coming and some that have been in MedTech Innovator. Um, there's Neosis as well. And the dental side is really kind of cool. Hmm. Uh, if you guys have heard of them, but um, a really cool company in the implant space. Um, so, you know, it's not just, you know, the, the laparoscopic and some of the other things we've, we've all been, you know, looking at. Um, and then also there's a, there's a bunch of, like, as I said, kind of stealth uh, laparoscopic, not just laparoscopic, but robotic surgery companies coming that, uh, as I said, are applying to MedTech and I've already seen and read through their applications. Um, and uh, boy, this space, you know, this is this is one to keep watching and one to be very excited about. There's some really cool technology coming. That's awesome. I know you say it's a lot of work. I'm sure it is, but yeah. it's got to be fun to go through these uh, these proposals and see what people are up to and, and the technology they're developing. It is. It, no, it's really, that's, you know, I mentioned before, the best part of being a VC always was just seeing so much innovation and, you know, MedTech Innovator, boy, talk about scratching an itch. I mean, I have, as I said, 1,800 companies applying last year. Um, that's a lot to look at. And I read every single application. I mean, from your perspective, I mean, what has you most excited about robotic surgery right now? I mean, what, what are you hoping they really are able to accomplish with this technology? Well, you know, it's the precision, obviously, you know, I think is the thing that, you know, a lot of people People think about it, just being able to, you know, make surgeons great, you know, every surgeon great, have a repeatable, really, really incredible procedure for every patient. Um, and so that's really good, you know, just upping the game for surgeons, you know, everywhere. Um, and then the data, you know, being able to capture all that data and be able to understand and analyze it and see what worked and why. And there's all these nuances that people tell us about that you would never know about if it wasn't for all the data that's coming out of these instruments now. So being able to say like, what made a good procedure? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, what was it both the, you know, the pre-procedure data that, you know, the, during the procedure, intra-procedure, you know, after, being able to have all of that data and now holistically use it, you know, and, and understand how that impacts outcomes, uh, you know, that's going to change everything. And then even, you know, you had this on your podcast on the last one, I think it was, where they're talking about orthopedics mm -hmm. and robotics. And, you know, and just like, I, I don't know if it was totally appreciated. I was listening to that interview that, you know, because someone was talking about the number of procedures that they would, you know, people were doing in a day before and how many they can do now. Um, you know, orthopedics is, you know, for many people, right? It's like woodshop. These guys are in there like with sledgehammers effectively, like pounding away. And I talk to surgeons, you know, all the time who were just, who, you know, are exhausted. You know, it's not just, are they, are they as good after the third procedure? Like physically it's exhausting. Um, and the idea that you could have a robot assisting in that and completely change the game um, is amazing. And even, as you mentioned, being out of being, you know, having people out of the field, you know, out of the radiation fields in many cases and things mm -hmm. that are other, so many things robotics can offer now um, that, you know, as I said, I'm all about giving, you know, improving outcomes for patients, right? That's what I think why we wake up and do this every day. I'm excited because it really sounds like a great equalizer like i'm like if like yeah. uh lord forbid i need a surgery I, I don't have to worry like is the is the surgeon you know tired he, you know is he is it getting right. toward his nap time and he worked too hard you know like this will equalize things and you know and people will have to worry less about like you know you know which hospital am i going to which you know who, who's handling you know the surgeon i mean you know if, if you're in the know i mean if you need something like that you're really looking for the most skilled surgeon imaginable and yeah and hopefully like the robotics will make sure we have a lot more like really skilled surgeons, you know, doing work. So that 
that's that's very exciting. Right. Hopefully it'll have the guardrails to stop the bad because it's still just a tool, right? You know, and exactly. you know, whether the whether the surgeon is, you know, is just average with a, you know, with a robot doesn't mean that the procedure is still going to go well. So, uh, you know, it's the guardrails kinds of stuff, I think, that are also really exciting. Um, there's a whole bunch of stuff in that space where these these devices, as you said, Chris, are getting better and better at, at stopping. Oh, yeah, at I mean, stopping. exactly. Even right. something like, um, you know, Smith and Nephew's Corey robot, which, you know, just got an indication for for hip surgery. But I mean, it's robotic piece is the uh, the tool. And, you know, in the it's inside the surgery tool. It's the, it's the burr. It'll, you know, you paint the area where you're going to do the work and it'll stop when you're outside of it. So, I mean, it's just, you know, really, like, as you said, it's like a guardrail. It's keeping the it's keeping the surgeon from, you know, making a mistake, which is which yeah. is great. Yeah. And giving it and some of these things are giving them giving them vision in various ways where they're right. able to stop penetrating too far and, you know, hitting a vessel or hitting a nerve or something else that, you know, would have just been, you know, unavoidable before in many cases. And now we can stop that. So, yeah. I was thinking about that active surgical with their uh, visualization system. It's kind of, they, they, they see it as a ways for, for surgery, sort of a, a real GPS system. So yeah. it's going to be interesting to see where all this technology moves. Let us move on, Chris, to uh, to number two on the new Marcus Newsmakers list. And then, uh, Paul, I know you have a deadline that you want to let people know about. So what's number two, Chris? Hey, well, number two on the list, uh, you know, we have, uh, you know, this this was earnings week this week. And, you know, it wasn't a, it has not been a, a great uh, earnings season, uh, you know, so far. And, you know, I think it's, you know, the big news has just been, you know, the effect that Omicron had it on procedures near the near the end of the year. But, um, you know, we we also had, uh, you know, Phillips, you know, they were missing in the in the fourth quarter, you know, the and the big reason was, you know, the uh, the respironics recall, you know, the, um, you know, the uh, major recall they've been been going through with, you know, their sleep devices and, you know, uh, you know, problems with uh, sound, sound abatement foam, you know, which is really like knocked them out of the market for now, but that, that they took a hit on that in Q4. And, you know, they were also talking about the supply chain problems that we're hearing about from a lot of companies. So, so, you know, hopefully, uh, you know, Phillips is able to, to work through these problems and, you know, we can uh, have a, have a better 2022. Yeah. We talked about, about the chips, the chip shortage before. Paul, were you the one who posted once on LinkedIn about, uh, no, it was, it was Mick Farrell, but that, that's should be should get a priority in, in the supply of chips because have you seen any impact on the folks you talk to who are making these high tech devices but just don't have the materials they need to to move it forward? Have we reached that point yet from your perspective? Oh yeah, no, we're definitely seeing that impact. Yeah. Um, uh, so a uh, couple of things I'll say in this. One is that um, I talk to these innovators all the time. I just talked to one right before this um, from our portfolio, and and I asked them the question. You know, okay, so you get your device approved. And, you know, you do your early validation study and now you're on the market uh, and you say, great, you know, we're going to do X, you know, million in revenue we're projecting for next year. Um, do you have the device, you know, the supply, the components to be able to deliver on your revenue projections? And almost all of the, the answers are like, well, you know, with supply chain disruption, you know, we're expecting a delay um, almost in every case because they yeah. go, oh, yeah, we've got enough for 500 units or 200 units or 400 units. And I go, well, what if you get 2000 orders? And they're like, well, you know, we'll deliver half of those and then or we'll deliver, you know, a quarter of those and then we'll hope to get the rest. And, you know, and they're trying and they're, you know, they're they're trying to do things to get access to chips and other things, but they're struggling. I mean, there's no question there is there is a major impact on supply chain, especially people with custom components. You know, these are they just can't count on stuff showing up um, when it needs to be here. Uh, and they're getting you know, they're getting outbid constantly by other people. So it's affecting people for sure. It's going to affect the ability for startups to go from approval to market 
to you know scale. That's going to be an impact, um, and no one has any visibility on when that's going to get better. So that's something to be aware of. And then secondly, one of our partners um, had a great had a great comment, which a recommendation. This is from Jabel, um, you know, who's the largest manufacturer of medical devices in the world. And their advice was tear apart your iPhone, tear apart, you know, your your other devices that are like an iPhone, you know, your Android phones and try and only use those components in your devices because we know those things are going to be available. Uh, So like as much as possible, use components that we know will be widely available and will have long life versus, you know, stuff that's all unavailable and coming to end of life soon. So some good advice there from the folks at Jay. Yeah, that's good advice. All right. Before we roll on to uh, to number one, uh, I want to hit you again with with the Device Talks weekly quiz. So let's see if you can uh, save some face here. Uh, This one, I'm sure you'll get. So we've got Chris Newmarker. He's, uh, let's see. I can tell you his Twitter handle. He's a Newmarker. Uh, Oh, that was actually going to be one of mine. So (laughs) (laughs) I was actually considering that as one of the questions. So I should have put that for you. Hold on. All right. So Chris is uh, living in Minnesota. Where does Chris Newmarker vacation with the family? Is it the Bakken Museum? Does he like to hang out at the Mayo Clinic with the kids? Or is he at the lake? At the lake. There you go. (laughs) It's Minnesota. (laughs) Where else would he be? All right. Good job. Good job. You got a point on the board. All right. right, One thing I love here is you ask anybody and they ever say like, oh, I am, you know, heading up to like Malak or I'm heading up to like, there's always just like, I'm headed up to the lake. Everyone's going to the lake. I don't know which lake that is, but. There's there's a lot of them. I've heard there's (laughs) 10,000. We should count them someday. What is your, uh, what's your big deadline coming up? I know folks who are interested in participating in the program, uh, some of them at least have to get on the stick. What's the deadline coming up? Yeah, that is important. So our deadline is February 15th. Um, you have two weeks, if you're listening to this podcast, roughly two weeks to get your application in. Um, applications take, I don't know, if you've, if you've ever raised money, if you've ever done a, a presentation, it'll probably take you an hour to pull together what we need for the application. Um, if you haven't, then it might take you a little longer, a couple hours to answer the questions, but that's it. Um, it doesn't take a lot of work. Uh, you go to medtechinnovator.org, www.medtechinnovator.org, either one, uh, and, uh, and you'll see a link at the top to apply. You know, Click that, register, go through the process. It's totally worth it. Even if you don't get accepted into MedTech Innovator. Every application is read by at least three people who generally comprise a manufacturer, one of the large manufacturers, um, like a J&J or Olympus or others, um, an investor. Maybe uh, I saw on that Distal Motion story, uh, 415 Capital was one of the, uh, was one of the investors. Um, they're one of our reviewers, uh, as, among many others. So you know, you're going to get read by investors. Uh, and, uh, and then offered clinicians. I'll be part of that as well, too, like KOLs. So every application gets reviewed. You get on somebody's radar. Um, it's easy to do. MedTechInnovator.org. February 15th is the deadline. Do not be late. And please don't apply on February 15th. Um, we usually get half of our applications on the final day. Uh, and that is, uh, look, if you do that, that's fine. But my preference is that you apply sooner. So as soon as you hear this, you know, go back to your, your desk pull out your laptop and uh, go to MedTech Innovator and do your application. Um, To be early is to be on time. To be on time is to be late. To be late is to be left. (laughs) Yes, that's right, Chris. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> so who should not apply? What is the earliest stage that you'll take? If I'm just a, a person with a, with a dream and a PowerPoint presentation, should I submit or do I need to have some kind of data? No, if you're a dream and a PowerPoint, you? this is not the right program for you. Um, we are not looking for starry-eyed okay. people right. who say like, boy, I wish I could cure cancer. Um, and I have a, a dream about how to do that. That's wonderful, but that's not MedTech Innovator yet. Um, what we're looking for are people who have a company. So, um, you know, you could be emerging from a university, but you got to have a team. Um, you know, you need to have a company. It's a requirement to have a company. Uh, so that's number one. You have to have a prototype of some kind. Uh, that could be software if you're a digital company. It could be a hardware device, whatever that is. We need some kind of a prototype. Uh, and we need some kind of evidence that this actually is going to work. Uh, in some cases, that might be historical evidence that you're riding on where someone did something very similar and now you're better at it. And you can point to their clinical data and say, look, it's working for them. We're doing this faster and more efficiently or less invasively, and it's gonna do the same thing. Um, but in most cases, we want your data. We want you to show us some bench data, some animal data, some cadaver or human data to say, look, this thing we're doing actually works. Um, and then we can, we can evaluate it. Otherwise, it might as well just be a dream. So, you know, we want you to be at that stage. And we, as I said, you have to have a team. That team could be one person, but we prefer it's multiple people. And, uh, and they need to be around because we're going to be giving you a lot of advice, a lot of guidance, setting up a bunch of meetings with important people. And if the, that team is not the team who's going to be there to continue for at least the next, you know, series of milestones, at least the next year, then what's the point of our doing that? So uh, you got to have uh, that team in place uh, and the ability to execute on those milestones. You should have some funding, not a ton of funding, but, you know, it's not, it's not an issue, um, but you got to have the ability to execute on your milestones. Those are the key criteria that we're looking for. And we, we take everything except for biopharma. So if you're developing a small molecule, not for us. If you're developing a biologic, not for us. Um, however, drug delivery, drug discovery, some of those other things are certainly in play as well, too. But that's what we're looking for. And last thing I'll mention, as I said before, you know, the corporate partners are a huge part of MedTech Innovator. So we're looking for things that they're looking for. Um, so if you're doing something that nobody is interested in, meaning like there's literally no path to a, a you know, a corporate partner, it's going to be harder to get into MedTech Innovator. But I really haven't met one of those yet. So, um, you know, I think for the most part, we have such great coverage of corporate partners. Uh, there's something for everybody in the game. Um, and, you know, and I, last thing I'll mention is that we are not just a device focused accelerator. You know, we talked about that before, you know, med tech, um, anything that's regulated by CDRH is med tech. So that could be, you know, the, all the software stuff, that's, that's med tech as well. So health tech, med tech, that's what we're looking for. Um, and, and an interesting piece of the data that we found in our, our survey with Deloitte last year, looking at all the companies that applied, um, all of, out of the companies, only 19% of them were focused on a treatment of disease. So, so actually over 80% over eighty of the applicants to MedTech Innovator are doing something other than treating disease. You know, it's the prevention, it's the clinical decision support, it's the diagnostic, it's the remote patient care afterwards, you know, the acute follow, you know, not just the acute, but the follow-up. It's all that other stuff is 80% of the people that are out there developing technology. And these aren't, again, the applicants are pretty self-selecting. They've raised money. You know, they, the applicants to MedTech Innovator had raised over $4 billion 
last year already. So, uh, you know, pre-med tech in here. So, yeah, well, that's exciting too. It's nice to see we're trying to improve healthcare overall in general. I mean, like, you know, what, what's the point if you can replace somebody's hip, if, you know, if they don't get cared for properly afterward and they fall down again and they, right. you know, have to go back and get another hip, you know, that's. Yeah. And, and a lot of these med tech companies, as you know, are going at risk these days so that, you know, if you do a surgical procedure or, or something else and, and there's a recurrence, Within some period of time, the device companies in some cases are are on the line to actually, exactly. you know, so we got to avoid that, right? We so you know, big part of this is is stopping readmission, stopping recurrence of things post-acute. Um, and I think I expect to see a lot more technology in that area. I mean, I'm seeing it, so I can tell you. Yeah, that's exciting. It's great. All right, great stuff. So the deadline again 15th. is February 14th. Fifteenth. <laughs> <15th. laughs> hey, no, you know but as Chris, as Chris said, you know, but, if you're on the fifteenth, you're late. So yes, February fourteenth, Valentine's Day. That <laughs> I was trying to help Day everybody. Is the, yeah, uh, is the deadline? Well, it's if one day. Before. That's right. He or she will will understand right. if you're tell a your wife, yeah, tell your husband, I'm sorry, yeah. but I need to go take an hour and do the medtech innovator application. Fantastic. All right, Chris, roll us into to number one on the big new markers newsmakers list. Hey, you know, number one on the list is that uh, Zimbo Biomet's uh, Zimvi uh, spinoff. It's moving forward. They uh, filed the uh, Form 10, 10 registration uh, statement with the SEC. And, uh, you know, they still haven't given an exact date on when it's going to start trading. But, uh, you know, they've they filed to have the shares traded on the NASDAQ under the symbol ZIMV. And it's going to be a 2,600 employee company uh, based in uh, Westminster, Colorado. So uh, it's it's an interesting trend. We've, you know, like, like we wrote about all these, you know, big, huge M&A deals. And now we're seeing like these giant conglomerates like splitting up. You know, we've got, you know, Zipper Biomet spinning off its uh, spine and dental businesses. We've got, uh, you know, uh, you know, GE Healthcare is going to be, uh, you know, going off on its own. j and is breaking up. Um, you know, we had Siemens Health and Years get created a few years ago. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, no, it's, it's, it seems like, I mean, I've, I mean, I've just been, you know, covering the industry for a decade, but, I mean, definitely looking at the longer term trend, I've heard people have been in here for a long time saying like you just it's like a think like amoeba or something, you know, they all gobble up and get some larger thing and then it splits up again. I mean, I, I, it sounds like we're like this is a cycle and we're like kind of in the uh, the splitting up phase. But uh, I, like, I mean, Paul, from the perspective of, you know, all these like startups that are like, hey, I want to, you know, I want to get partnerships and work with a, a larger company and maybe potentially be acquired by them someday. I mean, what what is this like trend like mean for for them. I think it's fantastic because the thing that's that makes um, all of us nervous is consolidation. Uh, less less people to partner, less people to acquire, and um, and that that's not good. It's really not a good trend. So we like to see it going the other way. We like these divestitures. We like seeing new players in the space. And by the way, you know, it's not just the big med tech companies. It's better have more companies you that you can potentially yeah. partner with. Yeah, yeah. no, right. we want more. And there's, you know, and the private equity is buying companies. There's all sorts of people buying med tech companies now. So, um, yeah, I like I like this trend, Chris. Um, and and I think the startups like it too. Uh, the more the more partners that are out there, the better. Yeah, that's exciting. And you know, and the other thing I'm noticing too, which which I I suspect is probably good news, is I'm I'm seeing a lot more, and we've seen a lot more IPOs. I mean, whether SPACs are good or bad or is debatable, but we're seeing more you know IPOs through those types of deals. Um, you know, so so the, I mean, I think when I you know just even a few years ago, it seemed like if you were a startup and you're going to exit, you got acquired, and you know now there's like some different different avenues. 
Yeah, I, I it's funny. Are we gonna get that spack attack sound effect in here? We'll do it. Spack attack. Spack attack. There it is. I, I gotta spack tell you, attack. um the uh <laughs> the the IPO thing is really incredible, SPAC or otherwise. Um getting to the public markets, you know, first of all. It's a, it's a lot to be a public company. So, you know, uh, I, you know, it's not that I'm encouraging everybody to go be a public company. Um, but I will say that, um, you, you know, probably three years ago when people would say, oh, and we're going to do, you know, an acquisition or an IPO, everybody would roll their eyes at the IPO come and go, okay, where are these, what are these guys smoking? Um, because that wasn't even in the cards, but boy, have things changed now. And uh, the SPAC stuff is very real and other, you know, other companies are going public that I never thought would be public. So um, I'm thrilled. I'm thrilled to see that as an option. Well, Dave Hickey and Brooke Story, welcome to the podcast. Tom, great to be here. Yeah, same, Tom. Very excited to get to talk to you today. This is uh, such an important topic. I mean, I, I've covered medtech. I always say this. I've covered medtech for a long time, but diagnostics uh, has always been one of the sleepier spaces, and uh, not anymore. You, you folks are, are rock stars. I bet you're uh, are getting called from family members like Super Bowl, like uh, people looking for Super Bowl tickets. I bet, right? People looking for for tests. Yeah, every event, right? Like sporting events, family gatherings, holidays, Thanksgiving. You you got it. You nailed it. Yeah, and they don't realize that we don't have a secret stash of inventory <laughs> um, hidden in our cars or our trunks or in our closets in our home, Tom. So it's been a, <laughs> just a couple of weeks. It's an unusual time. I was talking with someone else, another diagnostic maker who was at a conference, and they were getting more attention from non-med tech reporters than ever before just because people became aware of the company's name, and it's a big company, just because of the diagnostic test. So I do want to get into your backgrounds. That's usually how we start these conversations. But uh, in all seriousness, this is obviously a serious situation and and, and companies like BD have stepped up with the tools necessary to help us manage the pandemic as as best as possible. But what have the past uh, year and a half been like for BD and diagnostics? And Dave, we'll start with you since you've been involved with the business throughout. And then Brooke, I'd love to get your perspective having come in sort of uh, in the middle. So Dave, what have the two last two years, hard to believe, almost two years been like? Yeah. And if you think about it, we're in the third calendar year now, right? In terms of when this thing first started. So right. honestly, I've just been very, very proud of the BD team and the response to just the pandemic. It's interesting when you talk about diagnostics, right? Because, you know, probably what a lot of people don't know is that if you think about, like, we've probably all had blood tests taken, we've had urine tests, we've had swabs or whatever taken, and there's a there's, there's a very important stat that would say about 65 to 70% of clinical decisions are informed by a, a lab-based result, right? So for those of us in the industry, we have known the importance of diagnostics for a long, long time. But the broader community, the public don't, you know, they have the sample taken and they wait for the result. But I think to your point, this last couple of years, it's really brought through COVID the role of diagnostics to the forefront of family living rooms, right? I mean, and media and so on. So, and I'm just, you know, very proud of a, of a broad BD team that has been in a position to respond to that. So, you know, when we sensed, obviously, that COVID was here and in my business, there was a, a need to develop these tests. You know, we just put a group of people together, innovators, R&D, obviously helped by the FDA here in the United States, where they created this emergency use approach to commercializing rapid tests. And, and for the two years, that's been the, world, the whirlwind, right? And 
you know, whether it's been lab-based molecular tests or these rapid point-of-care tests, that really has been a huge focus for us over the past couple of years. And Brooke, you came over to BD from Medtronic last year, so sort of during all of this. What was it about this opportunity that drew you here? And what was the transition like? Well, yeah, yeah, transitioning in a pandemic is always interesting, I would say. First of all, uh, what drew me was kind of what Dave said. I've always been in healthcare. We'll talk about my background eventually, but I've been doing this for 25 years. And I really was drawn to, number one, BD's, the agility the company showed. And being a 120-year-old company, showing that type of agility and being able to maintain that agility in kind of shifting the business and getting um, these diagnostics into the market and reacting so quickly, I was truly impressed and intrigued and, and really excited about the opportunity. And so that that's really what prompted it for me. And that's what's stayed and been impressed upon me over the last almost nine months now is just this agility of our business and the excitement around diagnostics. And like you said, Tom, you know, I didn't know as much about it, but coming into an organization like this with so much expertise and depth in um, diagnostics in this organization, um, it's been a really great and fun transition. That's fantastic. Well, let, let's uh, let's go back to my typical format and dive a little more into, into your background. What was the first moment that, uh, or the first experience that drew you into the med tech industry? What happened with me, I started out my life as an industrial engineer on a muffler manufacturing shop floor in North Carolina. Oh, interesting. <laughs> <laughs> That's a new one. Yeah, yeah, I figured. I was working for Anderson Consulting or what's now Accenture at the time in the early 90s. And I got staffed on a company that manufactured and distributed blood plasma products for hemophiliacs and literally got the bug for healthcare at that point, really understanding the impact the HIV disease had on that population in the 80s. And when I was looking to transition away from consulting just because I didn't want to travel full-time, got married, started a family back in the late 90s, that's when I joined Johnson & Johnson. And I was there for about five years, realized I needed a business school degree because I had some gaps from a competency perspective as mm -hmm. functional right? Just really understanding a P&L and all of the decisions that I think influence how businesses are run. So I went to Michigan for grad school. And then uh, when I left Michigan, I joined Medtronic uh, back in 2006. And just, uh, again, just have had these, I've been really blessed, frankly, with all of these great opportunities and uh, working for organizations that are really doing great things in the world. And again, it's kind of what pulled me over to BD2, seeing what was going on here in diagnostics. Absolutely. I can understand that. And Dave, how about yourself? What, what drew you to the medtech industry? Yeah, well, I mean, I think as we said at the beginning, you know, I'm, I'm here in Baltimore, Maryland now, but you'll detect from my accent that I'm, I'm not a native Baltimorean. Right? <laughs> but, uh, so I'm from Manchester in the UK. And, and I always knew healthcare was my I don't know, North Star vocation. But what started me in the area of diagnostics and, and this side of medical device was I used to love a program on TV back in the UK called Quincy ME with uh, Jack Klugman. He played the pathology program. And I knew nothing about pathology. So, you know, I was at high school at the time and I started doing a little bit of careers counseling and meeting with the career person before I went to university. And that convinced me. So when I went to Manchester University, I did clinical biochemistry, huh. which is what all these blood tests are about and things like that. So then when I left, when I qualified out of biochemistry, 
I actually worked in the UK National Health Service as a biochemist for nearly seven years and then joined industry. I joined Siemens Healthcare at the time and then very fortunate to sort of get an international assignment to Tarrytown, New York in 2003, still in healthcare. And then I actually, you know, was with, uh, with that team, with that company till 2014, till I was brought into BD. So I've been with Becton Dickinson since 2014, always in healthcare, through the role of medical device, through the role of diagnostic testing. It's always been about protecting health and advancing health and just wanting to make an impact. And as I've gone through my career, I've just sort of focused on experiential growth and learning. So the great thing about coming to BD was the focus is on infectious disease. So I, I know biochemistry extremely well, and mm-hmm. it's a great opportunity to learn a new area of medicine. I have to say, Tom, I have to say, I loved Quincy Emmy too. It was on the, <laughs> it was on the television here in the United States when um, I was a kid as well. I watched it as well. And I, and I have to say, there were a lot of other doctor's offices, doctor's programs, rather, that might have inspired. It's interesting that a uh, medical examiner's show was the one that uh, that lit your fire there, Dave. Uh, what was it about? Just the discussion of the science? I mean, it was a great show. Yeah, it was It was the science of pathology, because I never sort of thought about doing medicine or anything yep. like that. But I'd, I'd done a little bit of work around, like, what are blood tests? And I'd heard this term of hematology and things like this. And it was just a curiosity to know more. And, and it was just this having a, an understanding through that program that there was this department in a hospital called the lab that did all these different tests to help doctors make a decision. And literally, you know, all the way through finishing high school, going to uni, doing my undergrad in medical science, and literally for 30 years now, I've practiced medical science and never wavered. So. That's great. No, that that's fantastic. And, and you're right. The, the, I think the path to a good career is to find the thing that inspires curiosity inside of you and really makes you want to learn and understand. So that certainly makes a great deal of sense. So you are now uh, executive vice president and president of BD Life Sciences. It's one of three groups within BD. Tell us a bit about the BD Life Sciences group, other than diagnostics, which we'll explore in a moment. What are the other components? Yeah, so Life Sciences is one of three what we call segments that make up Beckton Dickinson, the company. The other two segments are around medication management or the med- what we call medical segment and in- the interventional segment. Life Sciences has got three components to it. So diagnostics, which I know we're going to talk about. Then there is the sort of point of care business, which is also diagnostics, but very much focused on testing done outside of the lab right now. So by definition, it's at the point of care. And then the other, the third business unit there is what we call our bioscience business. And that really is a, a business focused. It's got clinical research and clinical diagnostics, uh, but really focused on things like leukemia, lymphoma, oncology, HIV. And, and that business is really focused on understanding the people's immune system. Interesting. So let's now drill down on, on the diagnostic space. Brooke, give us a little overview of, of your offerings in, in diagnostics, other than COVID, because we'll talk about the COVID test, the BD Verito at home test in a moment. Yeah, and we really, like Dave said, I mean, a lot of our COVID is is separated out. So we have kind of three segments within it, within our diagnostics business. Um, First, specimen management, and that's the collection of the specimen to test. And so this even includes blood collection, urine, those types of things. That's a big business um, based up in New Jersey. That's that's part of us. 
And then the other two segments within IDS, I would say one is microbiology. And so this is our backpack system, which is, you know, phenomenal standard of care for blood culture. And then we also have lab automation as a part of that, as we see labs transitioning and really having a labor shortage of people that are qualified in labs. And we saw some of that with with the COVID situation, right? Like who's going to run all these tests? So we have lab automation, microbiology, and then we also have molecular. Uh, And our molecular um, business provides, we have both a high throughput, highly automated system for the molecular space as well. It's our core system. It's called BD Core. We just introduced it in the United States and it's been produced in Europe already. So really excited about that. And then we have our BD Max, our acute setting, kind of desktop molecular diagnostic as well. And a ton of fun stuff in the pipeline there. Uh, You'll hear a lot about molecular diagnostics and that's... uh, that's kind of the chassis of the PCR testing that's going on right now. So um, that's the majority of it. Dave, did I miss anything? That was well summarized. Your nine months has been extremely well served. <laughs> yeah, we, we should note, as we will in the, in the write-up of the podcast, that Dave, you previously held the diagnostics position before exactly, we came yeah. aboard, right? Yeah. Yep. So this is, a, this is great. We get, we get sort of a, a twofer and two perspectives on, on the diagnostics <laughs> space. So Dave, you were, take me back. Let's, let's talk a bit about the COVID test, about BD Verador at home. Take me back to March 2020s or, or early 2020. I don't know when converse, when did conversations start within BD that we need to come up with something to enable people to test things at home? When did those kind of conversations start? Yeah, so so that started more into the 21, in, really into 2021. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. So, but to pick up on your point, Tom, so back in the March of 20, obviously we had sensed that we needed to develop just COVID tests and release these COVID tests into the market through the F, what they call the FDA Emergency Use Authorization Program. And this was where, you know, I said before, the team sort of got together, rallied together. We did rapid innovation. And um, we innovated both lab-based molecular tests, because at the time, a lot of the testing was being done in the lab. And then you might remember there was discussion around lab testing took a long time. It was three or four days, you know, to wait before you got a result. And that, that wasn't a great ideal. So we then moved to these point-of-care tests, but point-of-care tests on a small handheld device like the size of a, of a cell phone, but that were still being done by a healthcare professional, et cetera. And of course, that was good for symptomatic people and so on. And then, of course, you realize as the pandemic really started to take hold and there was this concept of the real, you know, what if we could do a test at home or a patient could do the test themselves? Because... You know, people may have been in contact, but they may have been asymptomatic and not shown any signs of of COVID. And suddenly the whole dialogue changed so that it became a a topic of public health surveillance rather than actual diagnostic testing of people that were symptomatic. And so that in 2021 started the the dialogue for us around we really should think about developing an at-home test. And specifically when we developed that test, and as you've seen, the, the BD Veritor at-home test was the first smartphone-enabled test that actually is used to sort of digitally interpret and report the result. And we'll come on to that a little bit later. But it was interesting because when we designed this test deliberately, we were very much looking to answer the questions. Imagine yourself who's never done a diagnostic test before as a consumer at home. How do we take the fear out of it? How do we make it a robust test? So that, you know, obviously what you would want to know as a user is, have I done the test properly? 
have I collected the sample properly? I mean, I reporting the results properly. So we, we built some very deliberate human factors, usability factors into the design of that test. That's totally true. I was testing my family prior to Christmas and I was, it wasn't your test. I wasn't able to get that one. I had another one and I just re- reading the instructions. I'm like, did I do that for a minute? Did I do that for 10 minutes? Did I swab both nostrils? There's all this anxiety just centered around the test to make sure you get it exactly right. Dave, let's dig a little deeper into the, uh, the use of the cell phone for your test. Why was that important? Yeah, so what we, it's a great question, Tom. And what we wanted to do was use the cell phone. And, and again, it's important to sort of say that the cell phone just doesn't take an, an image of the test strip. What it does is there's artificial intelligence and very unique algorithms in the cell phone app that actually allows interpretation and reporting of the result. So you know, as you've said, there are there are multiple COVID at-home tests on the market. The one thing that really the cell phone is important for is it gives you a very definitive positive or negative result, digital result right there, you know, on your, on your cell phone display. And that's important because I, I think for, you know, for yourself and many of the users or your listeners, you know, you'll have seen these sort of test strips where you're looking at a strip and is there a line there or not? Is that like, I think I see a faint line. I don't know whether it's positive or not. What we wanted to do with the cell phone is take that subjectivity out of it and really use the algorithms in the sort of camera and the app to be very definitive. So the way we've calibrated the app, the way we've calibrated the cell phone, it takes that subjectivity out. And then, of course, what it then allows also to do is you can then share that result if you want to. So if you're part of a big organization or a schooling system or a company, you know, you can just press send and send that result to your healthcare provider. So we just wanted to make it, we wanted to make it through the cell phone as sort of as smooth and as as connected and, and integrated as possible. That makes a great deal of sense, especially as we've talked about that home tests and the the people aren't able really to have we have nowhere to report any positive cases. So we don't have a true count of how many cases there are. I guess that was my misunderstanding. Is the sharing required with the Verador or was it was it optional? I, I In reading some write-ups about it, I thought it was more of a, it was already connected to a uh, place where the positive or negative result would be reported. So yeah, you can opt in to share the result if you want to share the result. Mm-hmm. Obviously, you know, some companies that are working on sort of testing programs and so on and so forth might have like a company identification number and you would have an employee or an associate identification number. And again, you work with your company and they have mandatory reporting requirements. The cell phone and the reporting capability can absolutely do that. What we're able to do through the app and obviously in a very de-identified and anonymous way is we can still look at data to sort of say how many tests have been done on aggregate, how many positives, how many negatives. So again, it it just really helps contribute towards the public health problem of really getting a sense of of where there is positivity on on not positivity, negative COVID tests. One comment I'll add just quickly is, Tom, to your question, my whole family took a Veritor at home test over the holidays as we were bringing a large group together with some elderly folks. And it's on people's cell phones, but no one had to report it. So it's definitely an opt-in type of thing, which I think is part of the beauty of our solution. Absolutely. That makes perfect sense. 
Well, I'd like to continue following the uh, the cell phone aspect of it because you, you acquired ScanWell Health because you the technology that you incorporated into the test. Do you see the cell phone component, the scanning component being an important part of diagnostic tests going forward? Great, great question. And it's interesting because, you know, I mean, one of the other benefits of the test, and I think that differentiates the BD test is, and again, for the user, it's got all these embedded videos that take you step by step over a 15 minute cycle of how to do the test properly. So it's all about trying to put the patient or the, the, the consumer at heat at ease. But one of the reasons why we went ahead with the Scanwell acquisition, the great team, and they're, they're now a part of BD, is you know when, when you really think about COVID, one of the things, and we sort of talked about it a little bit earlier on, is there probably isn't a person on the planet right now who hasn't heard about a diagnostic test on the back of COVID. Mm -hmm. But what it's also done is when you look at healthcare systems overall, it's really taught us, particularly at home and point of care, how to manage patients remotely. So we, you know, so when you look at point of care, there is a clearly a growing trend on the role of point of care tests. And yes, we're doing COVID at home right now. But if you also think about it, there are other sorts of tests that, that people are doing at home right now. I mean, pregnancy test is a good example. There's HIV self-test and so on and so forth. So we think the trend of at-home and point-of-care testing is just set to continue. But ultimately, if people do do more and test testing at home, you want to be able to connect that test result into the patient's electronic medical record, into the healthcare system. You might want to be able to connect a patient who has a positive result of whatever test to their healthcare provider. So instrumental for us is the acquisition of Scanwell was not only just about enabling the COVID solution right now, the at-home solution right now, but we actually think it'll be a foundational platform to just do more at-home tests over time. And before we go into the future, because I'd like to understand where this diagnostic space is headed. Focusing on, on the current situation, I made light of it at the start, the low supply of, of diagnostics. We've all been sort of scrambling, trying to find them. I'm on Facebook all the time with people noting, oh, CVS has it. Oh, Walgreens has them. And I now currently have a, a supply in my closet, feel safe and secure. But can you provide some insight, both of you, into what was behind the shortage? I mean, we, we say supply chain for everything, but what does that actually mean? And why have we had such a difficult keeping these on the shelves? when I'm reading, at least, that other countries uh, haven't had the same problems? Yeah, so again, for COVID, I'll pick up on it. And then if Brooke wants to add to it for broader diagnostics. And honestly, Tom, what I'd unpack it a little bit. So obviously, again, as a consumer, even if you think around the holiday time, Christmas time, there was a lot of dialogue and public awareness around supply chain challenges, just trying to get things moved across the globe and so on, and supply chain shortages. We've been very fortunate in that the components that make up the at-home testing kit for BD Veritor, we've had no supply chain challenges to be able to get components for the kit, I think is an important point, number one. But obviously, and really from December, sort of when, when Omicron in the US really started to take a hold, we have started to see significant, significant demand, as has the industry. So what we're doing right now is we were very targeted and selective as to where our channel would be, where we would sort of make these tests available. And we're ramping up supply and capacity 
very aggressively. And right now, as we move into it, if required, we have an ability to make up to about 12 million tests per month, you know, as we go forward. But for the contracts that we do have for the, you know, we're meeting all the the contractual commitments that we have right now. And then obviously, as we ramp up capacity, you know, we'll just look to sort of engage more. If people were interested right now, they can learn about the test. There's a dedicated website, uh, bdveritor.com. And then purely from an availability perspective, and to your point, it does cycle up and down based on demand. But the test is available online through amazon.com and everlywell.com. And it's available on shelf in Walgreens and Winn-Dixie. For the rest of the diagnostic portfolio, I'll just say we aren't seeing the same types of challenges because, I mean, the demand is up because of COVID and hospitalizations over the past two years. So we're we're still seeing really hot demand for diagnostics uh, beyond COVID, but are primarily we're caught up on that and we're basically producing flat out to meet all of that demand. So typical challenges with, I think, supply chain and logistics right now, just getting things moved around. It's a little slower than it was a couple of years ago before the pandemic. So we're seeing some delays from a transportation perspective, but overall pretty good. Definitely not the same type of kind of surges you see with COVID in kind of regular diagnostics. Interesting. Let's look ahead uh, and hopefully into, if not a COVID-free world, a more manageable world with COVID in it. Where are diagnostics headed? Is this sort of opened up new opportunities? It certainly has opened up new awareness for, for diagnostics. But how are you looking at the future of the diagnostics business? First of all, I think that there has been this revelation, right, as Dave kind of touched on, on changing care settings. And we see it in all types of spaces, but going from diagnostics being predominantly in a lab and then managed by a healthcare professional to being taken care of at home. And so the portfolio, even beyond just COVID, is looking at things like capillary blood collection. And we feel like we've cracked the code on that. So we're pretty excited about that providing a Uh, being an enabler for some of these new care settings, whether it's retail, diagnostics, or again, at home, things like that. The other thing I think, and I touched on it earlier, is uh, we're really excited about the automation and kind of robotics, automation, AI, all of those solutions we can bring to bear in the lab, because there's still going to be large central labs around the globe processing, you know, a lot of samples and providing a lot of diagnostic results. And so Uh, We're excited about that as well, because I think there's going to be a need for both, right? This shift in care, and then also kind of how do you process everything once somebody takes a test at home and potentially sends it in if they need to. So we're excited about that. We have our BD Keystra system, which is really automating microbiology. And then we have our BD Core system, which is for, is molecular. It's a molecular diagnostic tool. So those are a couple of things about which I'm really excited. How do you plan ahead with COVID still lurking about? I know we're all, I've mentioned a COVID-free world or COVID-managed world, whatever you want to call it. We're still vulnerable to these sort of ups and downs and surges and waves. How does that affect running a diagnostics business? Do you just, how do you manage forecasting? Uh, How do you plan resources? Uh, It just, it seems to be a really unusual time to be in this business. One thing I could say is for the the non-COVID business of BD, We're just moving forward with our strategies because there's still a compelling need for these solutions that we're bringing. 
like I said, we've been launching things. It's it's actually been a really good year, past few years, basically, for this business that Dave was running before I got here. So we've continued to innovate there. And then we do have a, and I think Dave called it a dedicated, like really highly skilled group that's focused on COVID. Mm-hmm. And so if we separate that, if I were to have to predict the whole business, including COVID, I would tell you I'd be a failure. <laughs> that wouldn't work <laughs> out well. Um, but fortunately, we get to predict the business without COVID. And then the COVID side, we know we're going to have some, you know, wild swings, basically. Dave, do you want to add on to the COVID? Yeah, but I'll only, I mean, I think you captured it well for the base business. I mean, I think there's so much history and resiliency and, and, you know, the diagnostics portfolio was so broad, you sort of got embedded resiliency. So I think Brooke captured that well. On COVID, what I would say is, honestly, Tom, we have a lot of experience in sort of managing surge capacity. You know, if, if I think about pre-COVID, you know, the, the BD Veritor actually is at least the instrument piece, not the at home, but the, the prior instrument that we now have one of the COVID tests on is also the platform that we use for flu. So in, in a respiratory season where you have flu, where you want to be able to diagnose flu A and or flu B, that season can also be very up and down, very volatile, you know, and you don't know what it is. So history will tell you what are the components where you want to just take some inventory, one of the components where you want to sort of get stockpiles in certain areas or whatever in terms of our manufacturing facilities. We've got a lot of experience around how to manage surge capacity. And then, you know, if the pandemic hits and we've got a shorten and optimized supply chain, again, we've just got to, there's a lot of levers we can pull. Was that flu test in the works prior to COVID or is this something that became necessary because you want to be able to discern between one and the other? So one of the things that BD has is we have a, a, a handheld instrument called the BD Veritor. And that's used by healthcare professionals, uh, oh, physician mm-hmm. office labs, and that's been doing flu testing for us since 2012. Sure. So before we did the at-home test, and when we sensed the need to develop a COVID assay, we quickly developed and released a COVID test for that BD Veritor instrument. Then what we did was we developed a test that could actually do flu and COVID on the same device but still to be used on the instrument. And then, so we already have that out in the market, so which is very ideal for this, for this season. So if somebody went to the physician or a nurse triage and, and, you know, I've got the sniffles, I've got the temperature, on a single test to be able to say, do you have COVID or flu? We already have that available. Then we move to the at-home test as a matter of public health. But, you know, when you look at our website, when you look at some of the information that we've made publicly available, we are actually working on and developing an at-home, what we call an at-home combination test, you know, that would be able to do, uh, detect flu and COVID in the similar same at-home format with a, with a digital phone app. So that's in development. Interesting. And Brooke, I was, I was noticing on the, uh, the report from Analyst Day that I think it was in 2024, you're developing, I, think, I believe it was an at-home or hopefully to developing an at-home strep test as a Parent, my kids are older now, but man, that would have been helpful 10 years ago. Is that something that's been in the works for a long time? Or again, is that something that we're looking for ways to, to serve people, even if they can't get into a doctor's office? Yeah, I think it, what we can say is we're looking for meeting people where they are and moving with the industry. And so we already have a very good respiratory 
diagnostic portfolio across many of our um, instruments, similar to what Dave was just talking about. And so at home is, is just the next generation, in my opinion, of where things are moving. And we really think it's going to make a difference for not only meeting people where they are during a pandemic, but even beyond, because there's a lot of underserved people around the globe. That if we can figure out ways to get these things to them, can we really make a difference? Again, advancing the world of health along with our mission, right? So it's in the works and, and we're excited about it. If you'll, you'll notice from Investor Day, we, we have a lot of focus on just expanding our menu for all of our instruments. And again, across the lab automation side, which is the big high throughput diagnostic tools we have out there, and then also all the way down to at home. Fantastic. Well, it's been, uh, I can't imagine, a more unusual couple of years and a, and a more challenging time to, to start a new job at a high profile position. I appreciate your, uh, your sharing your stories and for joining me on the podcast. Tom, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for having us. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much, Tom. Good to see you. All right, well, it was great to hear from Brooke Story and Dave Hickey of BD. And now is the time for our final question of the Device Talks Weekly Trivia. Paul Grant, this is your chance to redeem yourself in the eyes of the Device Talks uh, community. Let us see if you can recall what Chris Newmarker always advises listeners to do right now. The, the choices are like, follow, subscribe, or is it all of the above? I'm going to go with all of the above. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Like, what follow, people subscribe. Do? Like, there it is. follow, subscribe. <laughs> like, follow, subscribe. Fantastic. And, and you can find Chris on LinkedIn at <laughs> New Marker, also on Twitter as well, like a new marker. Outstanding, Paul. <laughs> fantastic. <laughs> fantastic. And what's my Twitter tag? Can you remember that one, Paul? MedTech Tom. There we go. All right. <laughs> you can also find me on LinkedIn. And where can we find you, Paul? You're quite the active uh, social media feller. Hey, I uh, I am on Twitter as Life Science VC, um, Life Science VC on Twitter on Med, on uh, on LinkedIn. I am Paul Graham, uh, so you can find me there. Uh, easy to easy to find me on uh, on LinkedIn, and MedTech Innovator is also on LinkedIn as MedTech Innovator, so that's pretty easy as well. And we're on on Twitter as MedTech Awards. So there you go. That's where we'll be on social media. Like, follow, and subscribe. To all of us. That's right. So once again, folks, if you uh, have a a team and if you have a company and if you have a great idea for MedTech, you need to uh, apply to the MedTech Innovator by February 15th. And what's the website again, Paul? That would be medtechinnovator.org, Tom. Uh, And and, and I will tell you one more thing here, everybody, for all all the (laughs) listeners, that one last thing. No, that one last thing is I don't track the exact numbers, but I feel like if I were to look back at uh, the podcast I've listened to at Device Talks, which I listen to every single one of them, you have you know earlier companies and then you have your big med tech, large cap companies. I'd say at least half of the people who you interview are med tech innovator alumni. Um, oh. Amazing interviews over the you know the you know the Justin Barad with your VR um, experience and Jennifer Freed and many 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 others who've been on here, you do an incredible job, you and, and Chris, at, uh, at celebrating and supporting innovators. 
And I just want to thank you guys for, for the work that you do. It makes a huge difference for, for these companies. So, so thank you for that support. Uh, and again, yeah. medtechinnovator.org. Here you go. That's awesome. Thank That's you awesome. for that. Chris, Chris and I have a good time and, uh, and we love for the industry as well. So this is, this yeah. is great fun. So uh, folks can help us out. Well, you can help yourself out first. Uh, once again, MedTech Innovator will be at Device Talks Boston, May 10th and 11th. You want to save yourself some dough when you register at devicetalks.com, use the code DTW, Device Talks Weekly, DTW25. You'll save 25% off the price of the time. That's early bird or regular price, but uh, go now and save lots of money. Register at devicetalks.com. Please do share this podcast on those social media channels that we talked about. And of course, we want folks to everyone now like, like follow, 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 subscribe, subscribe. <laughs> <laughs> and you'll have uh, if you subscribe to this podcast, you'll have future episodes sent directly. It's a little to you. slower when three people are doing it at once. No. Yeah, we never even tried it with two. We we went from one to three, so that was pretty pretty bold in our part. But hey, we're okay. we're innovators right. in our in our own right. Hey guys, thank you for having me on as a guest today. I really enjoyed it. It was a pleasure and an honor, and I hope you'll have me back. Sounds like a plan. I, I'm sure we will. And uh, thank you for being part of uh, Device Talks Boston. I uh, look forward to uh, working with you on uh, on the program May 10th and 11th in. Well, Boston. that's a wrap. Take care, everybody. Stay healthy. 